Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. We just read from Matthew, but in Luke's account of Jesus' birth, Luke uh, focuses primarily on Mary. He tells of Gabriel's announcement to Mary, of Mary's visit to Elizabeth, of Mary's hymn of praise. Even in telling of the incident when the shepherds came from the fields to visit the newborn baby Jesus, Luke mentions that Joseph and Mary were, were both there, but he only focuses on Mary's reaction to the shepherds. He says that she kept all these things and pondered them within her heart. Matthew's focus, however, is more on Joseph. He gives a genealogy of Joseph as Jesus's adopted father, whereas Luke gives Jesus's genealogy through Mary. And as we've, um, uh, and as we're seeing here in our sermon text, Matthew tells of how Joseph initially responded to the discovery that Mary was pregnant with some speculation about how she became pregnant. And then the angel visited him and explained the reality of the situation and then how Joseph did everything the angel told him to do. And so as we consider this interaction between Joseph and the angel, we learn at least three things that are about the importance of Jesus. We learn at least three things about the importance of Jesus. Um, These three things will form the outline of today's sermon. First, we learn the importance of the person of Jesus. Second, we learn the importance of the doctrine of Jesus. And third, we learn the importance of the authority of Jesus. Let's begin by looking at the importance of the person of Jesus. And notice what the angel tells Joseph about the baby Mary is carrying. In verse 20, the angel says, Do not be afraid to take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the angel is telling Joseph that the human life which is growing in Mary has not come from a human father. The human life that is growing in Mary has not come from a human father. And this is an important truth for the angel to explain to Joseph because Joseph had obviously been thinking that the baby had come from a human father. Not to say that this would have been an easy thing for Joseph to hear and understand. had to have, in fact, stopped Joseph in his tracks. He was thinking that it can only have one explanation. And the angel tells him that it's an entirely different explanation. But the implication of this truth goes even further. More than just giving Joseph the assurance that the baby wasn't conceived according to a human father, Joseph is learning that the baby was conceived according to the heavenly father. And so as Joseph is trying to process this in his mind, Uh, he's coming to the realization that this baby is a very important person because this baby is very literally the child of God. And realize, Joseph doesn't even know the gender of the baby yet. But as the angel continues to speak to him, Joseph learns that the child is a boy. And so we can think of the angel's appearance that Joseph has a gender reveal party. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. And she will bring forth 
a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There's something the angel said in verse 21 that would have uh, caused Joseph to, to grow in his understanding that this baby boy is an important person. Not only is he the son of God, but the angel said that Jesus is gonna save his people from their sins. That Jesus is gonna save his people from their sins. Notice the angel did not say that Jesus will save God's people from their sins, but that he will save his people from their sins. All throughout the Old Testament, the people of God were referred to as the people of God. For example, when the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he told Moses to march into Pharaoh's palace and say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. And that's God speaking through Moses. Those are God's words. God is calling the Israelites, my people. But here in our sermon text, Jesus's name is inserted where God's name is expected to be. Jesus will save his people from their sins. And this tells us something about the relationship between Jesus, um, that the relationship Jesus has with God the Father. It tells us that the people who belong to God the Father also belong to God the Son. The people who belong to God the Father also belong to God the Son. And to see this explicitly stated, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. About 34 years after the angel appeared to Joseph, Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. And then he prayed a prayer, the prayer which is recorded here in John 17. And Jesus prayed this prayer in the presence of the disciples. I'm not sure that's always appreciated. This is referred to as Jesus' high priestly prayer, and he prayed it in the presence of the disciples. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but the disciples would have heard Jesus praying this prayer, which would have been a great encouragement to them because Jesus is specifically praying for them, at least in the beginning. Look at John 17, verse six. Jesus prays to the Father, I have manifested your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now this is referring to the disciples. The part that's relevant to the point I'm making from our sermon text is how Jesus refers to the, the disciples as belonging to the Father and the Father having given them to Jesus. They were yours and you gave them to me, Jesus prays. Now look at verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And not none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scriptures might be fulfilled. The son of perdition is Judas, who at this very moment that Jesus is praying with his disciples, Judas was in the process of betraying Jesus to the Jewish leaders. So what Jesus is affirming here in his prayer is that the 11 disciples belong to God 
And those 11 disciples have been given to Jesus. And that he has successfully kept all 11 of them safely within his protective guardianship without any of them being lost. Then there was Judas, who does not belong to God and who was not given to Jesus for safekeeping. Now look at verse 20. Jesus continues in his prayer. I do not pray for these alone, referring to the 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And this is referring to all believers. All believers at all times and in all places, everyone who believes the testimony of Jesus Christ spoken by the apostles. And notice how Jesus refers to these believers in verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So in this prayer, Jesus is making a sharp distinction between believers and non-believers. Non-believers do not belong to the Father in the covenantal sense. They are not the people of God. Consequently, they have not been given to Jesus as his people. But believers do belong to the Father, and believers have been given to Jesus as his people. And Jesus does save each and every one of his people from their sins. So coming back to our sermon text, when the angel tells Joseph that the baby boy is to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, everything we just read from John 17 is being asserted by the angel into that statement. Every person whom God the Father has graciously elected unto salvation belongs to the Father. And every person who belongs to the Father has been given to Jesus as his people. And every person who belongs to Jesus will be saved from their sins. Not one will be lost. Not one will be overlooked. No one will be forgotten. No one will be discarded in, in, or in some other way. No one will fail to go where Jesus has gone to behold his glory. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. Absolutely. Without exception. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in him through the written testimony that the apostles have left us in the New Testament? If so, then you belong to Jesus. You are part of his people. You've been elected unto salvation by God the Father, and God the Father has given you to Jesus so that you may be saved from your sins. That's the gospel in which we stand, brothers and sisters. Your belief in Jesus is the inescapable result of your election. It's the necessary fruit of your regeneration. But it's not the original cause of your salvation. The original cause is that God elected you unto salvation. The Lord graciously elected you into the community of people that he has given to Jesus so that you'll be saved from your sins. The only appropriate response from us, therefore, is hallelujah, praise the Lord. 
I say this is the only appropriate response because your salvation and my salvation is entirely according to love, the love and grace of our triune God. We did nothing to deserve this. We were not more righteous than the sinners that God chose not to elect into salvation. We were not more knowledgeable than the sinners that God chose not to elect into salvation. We were no more receptive to the good news of the gospel. We, like every other sinner, were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest you should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What shall we say then? We can only say, hallelujah, praise the Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, there's at least one more thing in our sermon text that indicates the importance of the person of Jesus. Uh, this is not something that the angel spoke to Joseph. This is a commentary note that Matthew inserts into this account of the angel speaking to Joseph. Look at verses 22 and 23. Matthew writes, so all this was done that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. This of course is referring to the prophecy uh, in Isaiah 7:14. Matthew applies that prophecy to the birth of Jesus. And in so doing, he's calling our attention to the significance of the name Emmanuel. It means God with us. And though through the, through the person of Jesus, God the Son became incarnate. In other words, he took on flesh and he lived amongst us. Or to, to, to quote John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what is being referred to here with God with us. In Philippians 2, Paul describes the incarnation of Jesus as his willful act of humiliation. Jesus's willful act of humiliation. The second person of the Trinity made himself of no reputation. Jesus made himself a bond servant, being obedient to the point of death, even the death of the shameful, despised cross. Now, let me call your attention to how clever the devil is at twisting the truth into a lie. The truth that Matthew is writing about here in our sermon text is that God became a man. What the devil tries to convince people of is that man can become a God. It's the lie that misled Eve into eating the forbidden fruit. Right? The serpent said, you will not surely die for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. 
It's the lie that the Prince of Tyre believed. We learn in Ezekiel 28 that the Prince of Tyre declared that he is a God who sits in the seats of the God in the midst of the seas. It's the lie Nebuchadnezzar believed when he built a large golden statue of himself and demanded that everybody bow down and worship it. It's what King Herod believed as the crowds were shouting, the voice of a God, not a man, as Herod received these accolades. It's the lie that the man of sin believes. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4 says that he exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. It's the lie many of the Roman emperors believed as they threatened death and persecution to any of their citizens who did not bow down and worship them. And it's the lie that Mormonism teaches. Latter-day Saints believe that if a man lives a morally upright life, participates in the temple ordinances, gives a tithe of his income to the church, and has his marriage sealed for all eternity in the temple, then he'll be exalted to Godhood to be a God of his own planet when he passes from this earth. So the lie, this lie has persisted from the very beginning. It's the lie that a man can become a God. This is a profane distortion of the glorious truth that God has become a man. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. He willfully humbled himself to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem his people who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. So these are the things in our sermon text that teach us the importance of the person of Jesus. He was conceived according to his heavenly father. The father has given him the elect as his own people. And he is Emmanuel, God with us. Now let's look at what our sermon text teaches about the importance of the doctrine of Jesus. A lot of people don't like to talk about doctrine. They say something like, doctrine divides. Can't we all just get along? Can't we just enjoy each other? Why do certain people always feel the need to introduce doctrine into every situation? Well, the angel is introducing doctrine into the situation in our sermon text. As we've already seen, there's a lot of doctrinal implications to just the two sentences that the angel spoke to Joseph. There's the doctrine of election. There's the doctrine of predestination. There's the doctrine of the Trinity, the incarnation, regeneration, and justification. But one of the most obvious doctrines the angel is introducing into this situation is the doctrine of homardiology, or as it's better known, the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin. The angel makes no ifs, ands, or buts about the fact that people need to be saved from their sins. So the, the doctrine of original sin is assumed in what the angel is saying. So is the doctrine of total depravity. While he doesn't specifically spell these doctrines out, 
it's evident that the angel believes people are born under the condemnation of sin and have no ability or power in and of themselves to remedy their dire situation. This is why the angel's declaration that Jesus will save his people from their sins is such good news to those who read these words and believe them. Notice that the angel does not say that Jesus has come to be an example that he has come to show people how to live a good life. That that's, that's what all the false religions teach. All the other religions teach that the way you live is what really matters. But Christianity says the way you live is your problem. No matter what reforms you make to your life, no matter how hard you try to live a better life, your primary problem is that you're a sinner. You cannot live your way out of your sin predicament. You need a savior, somebody who can deliver you from the consequences of your sin. So Jesus came and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. An exclusive claim. He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. But you're not gonna get to the Father through a different door. He also said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up in the last day. And Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered and they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. But nowhere, nowhere does Jesus ever say, I've come to show you how to achieve your own salvation. That's not why he became incarnate. That's not why he is Emmanuel, God with us. The person who says, let's not complicate things with doctrine. Let's just try to live together in peaceful harmony is a person who's trying to save themselves from their own sins. Or it's a person who doesn't think that they need saving. Either they don't believe that they're a sinner who's storing up wrath for the day of wrath, or they think that they can escape God's wrath against their sin by being a good person. Either way, they're deceived. Either way, they've dismissed the doctrines that have been given to uh, awaken sinners to the dire situation that they're in and to point them to Jesus as the only option for a savior. And the irony is that the, the person who says doctrine doesn't matter, what matters is how you live, that's making a doctrinal statement. They've very clearly articulated a, a doctrine of justification by works. And the most loving thing you as a believer in the, the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone, the most loving thing that you can do for such a person is to show them that doctrine permeates every thought and every decision that every person makes. And the specific doctrines that function within our hearts or our minds or within our souls have eternal consequences. The specific doctrines that we embrace have eternal consequences. And so there's no such thing as a uh, putting aside doctrine and just living at peace with each other. 
Everybody has doctrine. Everybody makes every decision, every thought is held captive to our doctrine. So our sermon text teaches us that the importance, uh, teaches us about the importance of Jesus' person and the importance of Jesus' doctrine. Now let's look at the importance of the authority of Jesus. This, is, this one's not so obvious on a cursory reading of our sermon text, but I suspect that it made an impact, perhaps an immediate impact upon Joseph when the angel told him uh, that he was to name the child Jesus. Uh, the angel said in verse 21, Mary will bring forth a son and you shall name and you shall call his name Jesus. If you recall, we saw something uh, similar in the naming of John the Baptist. The relatives and neighbors wanted to name the baby boy after his father, but Zacharias and Elizabeth said, no, his name is John. And if you remember how that situation transpired, it wasn't until Zacharias wrote on the tablet, his name is John, that the people finally acquiesced. They finally backed down with their demands. Now, why was that? Because the father has the authority to name his child. All throughout the Bible, you see that people who give names to other people are, are, are the people who are in authority over those people who are renamed. Uh, and this doesn't only apply to babies, it applies to grown men. For example, when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah became servants to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar gave them the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? This was a display of Nebuchadnezzar's authority over those three young Israelites. And when Jesus said to Simon Peter, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas. Jesus was asserting his authority over Peter. In commenting on our sermon text, the late Tim Keller said that Joseph is essentially being told, you don't get to name Jesus, Jesus gets to name you. And Keller goes on to say, you cannot tell Jesus who he's supposed to be. He has the authority to tell you who you're supposed to be. You don't say, Jesus, this is the kind of person I wanna be. No, if he comes into your life, he says, this is the person I want you to be. Understand, brothers and sisters, that this is completely, completely contrary. What, what Tim Keller was just saying, what the reality of the situation is that Jesus has authority in your life is completely contrary to the lie that the world is telling us. The world is telling us that you can be whoever and whatever you want to be. The world is telling us that you're the captain of your own destiny. Whatever you set your mind to do, you can do it. You can achieve it. So don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Overcome every obstacle that gets in your way, the way of you achieving your dreams, because the desires and ambitions that are inside of you are the best version of you that you can ever possibly be. That's what the world tells you. But this is a lie. This is a lie and it's another lie that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Once again, we see that the devil truly is the father of all lies. When the serpent approached Eve in the garden, he asked, 
Is it true that God says you cannot eat from any of the trees in the garden? Notice how cleverly that was worded. It's an obvious distortion of what God actually said. Is it true that you cannot eat from any of the trees in the garden? The serpent asks. He knew what he was doing. He was testing Eve to see how she would respond. And he was setting her up for the lie that he was about to tell. And so Eve responds by saying, no, it's just the tree in the middle of the garden that we can't eat from. To which the serpent says, oh, well, don't you realize that if you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. The implication being, you don't, realize, don't you realize that that's the best tree out of all of them? That's the one tree that will allow you to be everything that you ever wanted to be? If God says you can't eat from that tree, then he's obviously trying to keep you down. He obviously is trying to prevent you from achieving your full potential. You can't trust God because he obviously doesn't want you to be the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. Brothers and sisters, this lie has entered into the bloodstream of the human race. It's, it, it buried itself deep within the deceitful and desperately wicked hearts of every sinner to the degree that our automatic assumption is that if I give myself completely to God, then I'm going to be miserable. If I give God complete authority over my life, then I'm not gonna be happy because he's gonna make me do things that I don't wanna do. He's gonna send me to places that I don't wanna go. He's gonna keep me from pursuing my dreams and achieving my full potential. This is how sin has warped our thinking. I'm quite confident that if you honestly assess yourself right now, honestly assess yourself, that you either are struggling with this very lie right now, or that this is something you've struggled with in the past and have only overcome it by the sanctifying grace of God. In Matthew 10, 39, Jesus says that he who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a paradox. It's one of those statements in the Bible that doesn't seem to make sense to our natural intuition, but when we accept it by faith, it proves to be true. Similarly, Jesus says in John 12, 24, that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. What's the point Jesus is making? It's only when you die to self, when you surrender your entire life to him, when you stop trying to give Jesus only part of yourself, that you experience the true joy and freedom of being in Christ. Marriage is very similar. In marriage, the husband and wife need to give up the right to make whatever decisions they want. In other words, they need to give up the idea that they can live without any consideration of their spouse. When they both give to the other, the husband gives sacrificially, he gives his love sacrificially to his wife and the wife gives respect and submission to her husband, then the marriage, marriage is astonishingly satisfying. There's intense love 
between the husband and the wife. There's remarkable trust. There's immense joy that's shared between them. There's extraordinary satisfaction. But when one or both of them hold back the things that they owe to their spouse, then the marriage suffers. The love between them grows cold. Trust is compromised. Joy is diminished. And the longer this goes on, the greater the sense of dissatisfaction with the marriage. The marriage relationship is a paradox. It's one of those things that doesn't seem to make sense to our natural intuition. But when we accept by faith what the scriptures tell us about being a self-giving spouse, it proves itself to be true. It proves to come with all the blessings that God has promised. Brothers and sisters, this is how our relationship with Jesus is. He gave himself for us. When he went to the cross, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And what does Jesus require of us? That we give ourselves to him. That we deny ourselves, that we take up our cross, that we follow him. And what happens when we accept this by faith and do it? Jesus gives the answer to this question in John 8, verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. You want the light of life, brothers and sisters? Translation, if you surrender your entire life to Christ, you will walk in the light of life. You'll experience the intensity of his love. You'll trust him in ways that you've never been able to trust him before. Your joy will be complete and you will abide in satisfaction. And the converse is true as well. If you have not surrendered yourself to Jesus, then you are walking in darkness. Any relationship you think you have with Jesus is sterile and superficial. You don't experience the joy of belonging to him. You don't trust him. You're not satisfied with him. But you do have one thing. You have your perception of autonomy. You believe that your life is your own. You think that you know what's best for you, what makes you happy, how to chase your dreams, how to be the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. You think you have authority over your life. But the reality is, that you're just, you've been deceived by the enemy. You're walking in darkness, which is why you're convinced that if you surrender yourself to Christ, then you'll be miserable. You've believed the lie. Dear friends, if you are his people, then realize that he has already given himself for you. He has already extended his love to you. While you were still a sinner, he died for you. While you were an enemy, you were reconciled to God through Jesus' voluntary death on the cross. So you don't need to be anxious about surrendering yourself to him. Why not? Because he has already laid his life down for you. He has already proven his love for you. You're not being asked 
to make the first move and then trust that Jesus might reciprocate? No. If you are his people, then he has already fulfilled his end of the bargain. He has already demonstrated that he's in it for your benefit. So why would you withhold yourself from him? Why would you hesitate to surrender every part of your life to Jesus as your Lord? Is it because you fear you'll be miserable? Is it because you're afraid he'll make you do things you don't want to do? Go places you don't want to go? And keep you from pursuing your dreams and achieving your full potential? That's the lie of the devil, dear friend. That's the lie of the devil. It's the original lie. Don't believe the lie. Rather, believe the scriptures. Proverbs 19.23 assures us that the fear of the Lord leads to life, and he who has it will abide in what? Satisfaction. He who has it will abide in satisfaction. Psalm 63, verses three through five says, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as the marrow as with marrow and fatness, as my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. Do you praise the Lord with joyful lips, brothers and sisters? Psalm 4.4 admits of God, you have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that the grain and wine increased. Do you know that, do you know that gladness in your heart? Have you experienced that? And Psalm 36 verses seven through nine declare, How precious is your loveliness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is a fountain of life. In uh, in, In your light, we see light. Do you want to experience the joy and satisfaction depicted in these Psalms, brothers and sisters? Is that your desire? Do you want to drink richly from the rivers of God's pleasures? Then give yourself to Christ. Don't hold back any part of your life. Surrender your perceived autonomy. Surrender your selfish dreams. Die to self and trust that the fear of the Lord leads to life and he who has it will abide forever in satisfaction. Amen. And let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George. Available at NathanClarkGeorge.com.